bringing you our latest series on navigating the energy transition, a podcast series where RBC Capital Markets experts and guest speakers share their insights on the latest trends and opportunities in energy transition. Good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you're based. My name's Cameron Hussain, um, and I'm from the insurance team in the European Equity Research team at RBC in London. Um, today, my colleague, uh, Mark Dweller from our US team, and I are really pleased to be hosting the 10th session in the RBC Navigating the Energy Transition series. Um, today, we will focus on insurance, climate change, and the energy transition. Uh, today's session, uh, which is the 10th one, as I mentioned, will be the last session ahead of a summer break. The series will then pick up in the autumn to let people in, enjoy uh, a Zoom-free summer, hopefully, uh, and a little bit of outdoors time. Um, so moving on to, the, to today's topic, insurance is a key stakeholder in climate change. You know, recent results have been heavily impacted by weather-related losses, uh, 2017 to, 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 to this year included, um, but also in supporting the energy transition as one of the largest um, asset managers or, or kind of owners of assets globally. Today, we're really thrilled to be joined by two esteemed speakers. Um, firstly, we have uh, Mariam uh, Golnaragi, who is the Director of Climate Change and Emerging Environmental Topics for the Geneva Association, and Paul Nunn, who is a senior advisor uh, who focuses on many things, including ESG uh, from school. In terms of today's session, the initial discussion will, will last about 40 to 45 minutes before we move on to Q&A. If you'd like to submit a question, please use the portal where you can submit your questions. Um, so, Paul, I'm going to start the session off talking about climate change. Um, how should we think about defining this? You know, climate change is something we talk about a lot. How do we define it? And what are the implications for insurers from these changes in the climate? Uh, thank you, Cameron, and hello, everybody. Thank you very much um, to uh, Cameron and Mark for inviting me to, just to start. Well, that's a very big, wide question. Um, there are, I guess, from focusing on the risks that climate change represents to the industry, there's a fairly standard classification um, that is emerging of different flavors of risk that is used generally in the industry. And we typically segment into physical risks, transition risks, and sometimes people carve out of transition risks separately uh, litigation risks associated with the transition. So taking those in turn, I guess the physical risks we are, um, you mentioned the, the results, and that's uh, an obvious way that the industry is affected with um, climate-related uh, weather events. Um, segmented into those sort of acute risks where we see extreme weather, um, directly affecting the built environment and all of the uh, all of the insurance that that that, uh, that has been purchased and sold, protecting the built environment. But we also have chronic risks, which are much much sort of slower onset. Um, and of a of a chronic risk, which doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily manifest itself in a, in, a, in a sort of sudden and accidental kind of way, um, but it changes the risk profile over time. Transition risks, uh, on the other hand, very much relate to, uh, to the topic of your series, the energy transition. Um, you know, global society 
needs to change dramatically if we are going to manage climate change effectively. Um, ideally, we would have an orderly transition, but there will be a transition uh, one way or another, and we've got a pretty busy decade ahead of us um, scrambling because we are running out of time to have an orderly transition. So there's going to be a lot of disruption in uh, in the world and in the economy, and transition risks that disruption. There are there are going to be organisations which are um, very very proactive and on the front foot and managing the transition of their business model well, and there'll be others that that, that struggle with that transition. We're going to see public policy, carbon pricing, carbon taxes, emission trading schemes. They're all going to have a major effect on, on, on businesses and individuals. And there are some attendant risks associated with that transition. Um, so, for, you know, for example, you know, companies that are laggards in their particular sector may well end up with, uh, um, with, with, with uh, poorer maintenance regimes and, and, and end up kind of having, having, uh, having more um, losses in just because of the way that their, their plant machinery is maintained. Um, from, you know, the manifestation from, I mean, I think, I think Mariam's probably got a really good insight on the litigation risk, so maybe, Mariam, you can pick, pick up that side. But in terms of how it affects the business, clearly there, as, as the physical risks are changing, there are, there are potential implications on, on pricing adequacy, so we can have sort of earnings events and earnings impacts but also um you know we, we need to keep an eye on the changing potential for severity of loss and, and it's difficult the attribution of, of of specific events to climate change is very very difficult particularly when we are focused as an industry on some of the extremes the catastrophic events um and the, the natural variability that we see in the you know data that you know anyway in terms of managing hurricanes and, and major floods is huge so trying to isolate just how much of that is as a result of of climate change is is is, is a real challenge that's a good that's a good start paul and it uh, you know i think it sets a kind of a little bit of a working framework maybe i can ask Miriam to to talk through you know some of the liabilities some of the investment aspects and and what management teams are doing uh you know as they start to try to address some of these things uh, first of all, for, uh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, just building on what Paul has said, uh, building a little bit more around the liability side of the business, uh, Paul talked to the physical risk, um, short-term, long-term, and, and the nature of how the characteristics of acute and chronic risks are, are changing and evolving. But one thing we have to bear in mind that particularly for PNC insurers on a long-term horizon, um, you know, it could be that climate change is not really the main driver, but what we are doing with exposures and vulner vulnerabilities of the systems pertaining to assets, the way we are building, the way we are moving people uh, and assets into high-risk areas. So one of the things that I do want to point here is that assessing risk of uh, the physical risk to the liability side of the insurance uh, business, particularly in the long-term horizons, would very much depend on 
what kind of adaptation and risk management uh, measures various stakeholders, being governments, being homeowners, being businesses, will take to, to keep the risk down. So let's make sure that we give it a full balance that it's climate change, but exposure and vulnerability is a big challenge moving ahead. And Paul talked about uh, the um, the transition risk, and, and you know that he mentioned about policy risk, litigation risk, market risk, how market will behave uh, as we transition to a resilient low carbon economy and technological risks. Uh, all of these will have implications both from a point of view of risk and opportunity uh, for the liability side of PNC insurance. For example, from a policy risk, um, you know, lack of clarity from the government on uh, not only policies related to carbon pricing and transitioning, but also, for example, policies around, uh, you know, dealing with development uh, in coastal areas in case of sea level rise. I mean, these are some of the uncertainties that the industry has to find its way through until the governments bring more clarity to the table. Um, Another one that I want to talk about is, for example, market forces and, um, you know, uh, viability of certain industries that uh, insurance business is underwriting, not just for its NATCAP, but as, as a business uh, and offering business solutions to those industries. This may change as these industries, particularly what I call carbon majors, and in this case, you know, energy sector with oil and gas, maybe over time replaced with uh, alternatives. But then the good news is losing business on one side will be gaining business in another. I mean, this is the point that without insurance, we can't move on with the transitioning. And it really depends on the agility of the insurance industry to also adjust itself to the transition and align itself to the transition and innovate its products and services. Now, let's uh, look at the investment side of this business. As second largest um, investors, obviously the, the industry can play a huge role uh, with respect to uh, not only dealing with this risk, but the transitioning. When you look at the investment side, actually the story is not any different from pension funds or other uh, you know, institutional investors, particularly I would say in this case, uh, life insurers who are the long-term investors. Uh, what you see is driven by some of the regulatory activities and exercises that have started uh, to, to, to come to play. Um, the, the focus of the investment side has been mainly been managing the transition risk. You know, would I have stranded asset in, change, in case of changes in policies and so on? But I think uh, increasingly now the focus is going on what about physical risk? What's the impact of extreme events and other things on my portfolio? Uh, for example, directly in terms of the buildings and infrastructure and other uh, things that I have in my portfolio of investments, but also indirectly through investment in companies. And uh, what we see, which is very interesting among the PNC insurers, that there is uh, the, the industry, the, the two sides of the balance sheet is starting to collaborate with respect to expertise. So there is significant amount of knowledge and expertise in the underwriting and liability side. And the investment side is, is trying to leverage that with respect to tools that the, you know, the liability side is using uh, for assessing physical risk on the, um, on the investment side. And you know, 
there is now a, a movement again like other institutional investors in mitigating action around the portfolio uh, around you know uh, exiting from high carbon intensive sectors or if you are invested in it maybe you don't underwrite it or vice versa best in class thematic investments active ownership due diligence uh, all in all there is a lot of activity on the investment side in terms of um, you know, really thinking about how to incorporate climate change considerations, some as part of their ESG investing, but others really are considering this as a core uh, risk that needs to be managed and looking at it from that. But to your last point about how the C-suite of this industry is responding, uh, we've done a survey and we have identified three types of behavior by boards and C-suite. Uh, first are companies that are considering climate change as a core business issue that impacts their business on both sides of the balance sheet on short, medium, and long-term horizons. These kind of companies are developing corporate policy strategies. They are incorporating this issue in their enterprise risk management and particularly linking both sides of the balance sheet. Uh, they have developed institutional teams and really looking at institutional level integration, le leveraging expertise. Um, they're investing heavily in data and tools and methodologies for climate risk assessment. Very importantly, these companies are engaged in shaping public policy and regulations by engaging with governments and regulators. And they're exploring new markets, business models, innovations and incentives. Category two of companies, there are companies that traditionally put climate change in their sort of sustainability ESG uh, approach, uh, generally managed by an office that was away from core business. But the C-suite is recognizing that they need to consider climate change as core business and they're mobilizing the board and the organization. Uh, essentially, uh, these no type of companies are still focused around just carbon footprint, they're recycling, but you see movement in the company in terms of similar actions, uh, as I pointed out in the first category. These companies are still driven by regulations as opposed to try to shape it. And then the last category are companies that are still not realizing that this is core business. And, and essentially, maybe the much smaller companies uh, obviously resource, um, uh, you know, the culture, um, lack of expertise, um, and internal silos are leading to that. But certainly, uh, uh, as, as a platform of CEOs, we are trying to mobilize this within the PNC and life insurers to gear uh, companies more towards category one. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Mariam. I guess it's. Uh, I guess it must be interesting in your conversations with, with the CEOs there, where when you, I'm sure when you tell them they're in bucket three, they don't like to be told they're in bucket three. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think that would be <laughs> very interesting to see their responses. I think we were going to move on to kind of what the industry is is doing to address kind of um, you know climate change and, and I guess the transition issues here. Um, so, Paul, I'm going to ask a very kind of another very kind of broad question. Um, can you talk about what the industry is doing to address climate change, specifically on, on the underwriting side? I'm very interested there. And I guess looking into the future, do you think there'll be areas where, you know, some risks are uninsurable? You know, 100 years ago, there was far less development in some parts of the world. And now 
um, Florida is completely built up. Do, do you think that will be a concern uh, in the future? So, in, in terms of in terms of what's what is the what in practical terms is the industry doing? I think that um, you know the industry has, has had uh, a lot of experience at trying to quantify risk to natural hazards, and um, it, in many ways. Um, understanding the way that climate change is influencing the natural hazards that we insure and underwrite anyway is really just part of an ongoing you know, ex you know extension to work that we're already doing um, it's not easy to incorporate climate change into into our catastrophe risk models um, historically those models have been constructed looking backwards so we tried we built models that try to repl replicate the historical pattern of hurricanes and floods and, and earthquakes. And it's clear that we need to um, regularly adjust them um, as we see climate change happening or, or even, you know, even more progressively flip it around so that they're forward-looking um, uh, so that we're anticipating climate change trends. But, you know, having said that, the industry still typically writes 12 months policies. Um, and most of the climate science is telling us something about what might happen in 2050 or 2100. So it's a, it's a, it's a huge heroic extrapolation or interpolation at the moment um, to use climate models directly to inform catastrophe risk models. But you know, I think increasingly the industry is starting to grapple, uh, to grasp that nettle and grapple with that, grapple with that challenge of how do you, how do you condition your catastrophe models um, to make sure that they stay current as we see sea levels rising, as we have more and more evidence um, of changing patterns of wildfire. Or, or Those are some good thoughts on the again on the allows land. for. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I... Sorry, did I cut out then, Mark? I apologize. Uh, you you cut out for me. So go go ahead and finish your no, thought. No, no, I, no, I that, didn't that's... mean to jump on your line. No, no, that's okay. fine. It was just just to say that um, you know this is that we are you know we're, we're grappling grappling that uh, that challenge now, um, and 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 that's you know it's really trying to embed our understanding of climate risk into business as usual decision making is 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 what we're really trying to do now in addition um what is clear is the climate change is going to have a really profound effect on many of the more vulnerable people in global society so there's a lot of work um trying to address protection gap challenges for developing countries and the industry has uh, has been a strong collaborator with with the public sector in um, an initiative called the Insurance Development Forum, trying to specifically provide new risk transfer solutions in developing economies. But we also have major gaps in coverage in uh, in, in advanced and mature economies with um, with highly developed insurance industries. So you know, flood as a as a as a coverage is not generally uh, a standard coverage in insurance policies. So we have 
you know, we, we have some, some real gaps that, uh, that will need to be addressed in, in, in mature insurance markets as well. Longer term, um, to it's a, it's, it's, a real, it's a real concern that there are market failures um, where there are certain parts of the world for certain perils which are just uh, become inevitable. That I think we may have lost Paul. Maybe we'll come back I to him when he's fair. able to reconnect. Sure. Maybe we'll jump over to Miriam for, for a second. Uh, Paul was doing a pretty good job of explaining to us some of the, uh, you know, what the industry is doing from an underwriting and a risk management standpoint. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the asset side of the balance sheet, how people are, uh, you know, addressing those exposures as well as, you know, maybe some of the regulatory hurdles that they encounter, uh, you know, as they as, as they put it all together. Absolutely. If I can take a moment and build on what Paul was saying, because he was pointing to something very important, and I don't want to lose the message on the liability side of the business. Would that be all right? I can build it sure, on that. Sure, definitely. Uh, great. So, so Paul was alluding to uh, addressing the protection gap, not only in vulnerable nations, but in mature economies. Uh, and, and this is a very important point. Um, you know, we've just recently uh, looked at floods in five mature economies, US, Canada, UK, Germany, and Australia. And, and one of the important things that we are seeing is the role of insurance, it, not only just in terms of providing protection, but in terms of what is offering the society by way of providing more information about risk, risk awareness, risk communication, that goes uh, you know, into the policyholders has been, uh, as well as the government has been crucial. And what we are seeing is significantly strength, strengthened collaboration between the insurance industry and governments in mature economies to rethink flood risk management in general, to try to mobilize more towards prevention and risk reduction, and, and to really start thinking about the role that insurance can play. And I want to very much highlight, for example, what has happened in UK with respect to flood re, what has happened in Australia in some of the states in terms of uh, you know, availability insurance uh, in a conditional way of government also investing in uh, risk mitigation and risk reduction and now reforms that are shaping up in Canada. So I want to point out that we can't just say this is the risk for the insurance in the future, but what insurers are doing by way of working with governments, with the banking systems and other to rethink uh, risk management and really try to work on risk reduction and prevention to ensure to enable insurability and affordability. So I again want to go back and say this is an, also an issue about dealing with exposures and vulnerabilities. Now, getting on the investment side of this, um, obviously the industry would want to play a huge role in investing in transitioning to net zero. But the question is how? And uh, you know, there has been a, a number of approaches, as I said before, as to how you go about that. But the hurdles to investing at scale uh, are, are are several folds. They are they are market based type of hurdles linked to availability of investable grade projects, 
there are also issues related to, for example, um, taxonomy, um, standards for investing. Uh, another issue that has been highlighted is around regulatory requirements about uh, capital allocation for long-term investing. Um, and then um, two other things, one I pointed out is lack of clarity and massive uncertainty associated with national policies around, for example, energy transitioning, kind of makes uh, investors a little bit insecure. And a lot of time that goes with uh, diverging policies, in other words, for example, subsidies towards oil and gas that does not sort of allude to government's interest in investing towards the transition, uh, transitioning world. Uh, technology is another one, volatility of new technology markets for transitioning uh, is an issue. I think um, one of the areas that we are undertaking is uh, to the point that Paul made in the first question, we don't have much time. If we want to reduce uh, the, GH, the, the greenhouse gas emissions to the levels, to the targets of Paris agreements, we don't have much time. So we really need to think about a transitioning period where we have um, carbon sequestration type of technologies. And beyond that, we really need to think in a more of a revolutionary way around technologies that we need to enable a, a smooth and reliable and resilient transitioning of sectors such as energy. So where the role of insurers come in is what are the risks of these technologies as we build them at scale? Uh, you know, these could be operational risks, technological risks, environmental risk, disposal risk. So this offers a whole, uh, not just managing the risk, but a whole range of opportunities for industry to consider as it considers underwriting that transitioning. So I maybe pass on. Paul, do you have anything else to add? Uh, you were disconnected. I tried to pick up from the point you left. So I was going to, I think I was going to talking, talking about the, um, the, the, the more vulnerable people in the world in, in developing economies have less resilience to climate change effects and therefore the industry's got lots of opportunity um, to work on sovereign risk transfer and microinsurance and, and ways of providing protection to those, those more, more vulnerable in society. But there's a, in the developed world, we also have lots of, lots of uh, opportunities in areas like flood. Um, which are not standard perils. So, um, yeah, the, the, there's, there's a lot to aim for in terms of providing uh, new insurance products um, that directly support uh, society, be better, you know, better prepared and, and able to bounce back from, from climate-related events when they happen. Um, so it's it's not all doom and gloom in in, in the sense that even even though we, you know we are seeing a, a generally an, a slow and inexorable increase in risk, it does mean that with with a growing awareness, um, you know, risk risk is our DNA, right? So it's it's, it's our product um, that uh, there are opportunities to, to to develop new products and 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 develop new markets. Should we move on to I guess. We, we always spend a lot of time, and I think investors do as well, we spend a lot of time just thinking about the downside from, from these things. But clearly there are opportunities. 
Um, so, Mariam, I think you, you touched on this uh, a little bit already, but maybe could you talk about the opportunities that you think will come from the, the energy transition? Um, you know, I'm I sure there's lots that we can talk about on, on, on this area. Absolutely. Um, and I want to sort of, again, pick up from the last words that Paul ended, that risk is in the DNA is the reason for being of the insurance industry. So as we think about the transitioning to net zero, first of all, I just wanted to highlight that the industry is mobilizing uh, together with the financial sector. I would say in the absence of you know clear policies and so on, there are several concrete movements to really systemically change the system to enable uh, that transitioning, to enable investing in that transitioning. And those are around, um, I would say, the financial stability uh, board's task force for climate-related financial disclosure was the first element uh, of that, was the first tipping point, really pointing to the fact that we need clear, reliable, uh, climate risk and opportunity information to be able to feed that into the investment decisions for a well-planned transitioning. And subsequently, a lot of initiatives such as subs, sub, uh, sustainable finance frameworks, uh, you know, what financial and insurance regulation, regulatory bodies are doing, international rating agencies, etc., to really enable this, to enable this transitioning, to help in investors put their money into these long-term investments. So what does that mean for insurers? So first of all, insurers and many insurers are mobilizing through platforms to start thinking about what would transitioning to a net zero look like. These are, for example, alliances on net zero, the asset owner alliance, Asset Management Alliance and a new alliance that will come to bear at COP26 this November on uh, the, the insurance alliance around net zero. So the idea is how do we come together? What does that transitioning would look like? And how do we need to innovate our products and services and our investments to support that transitioning forward? I would like to highlight two particular areas where there are great opportunities. One is around new technologies and new processes uh, that, uh, you know, to um, alternatives, um, you know, for efficiency, and then for, um, for uh, carbon capture and storage. Uh, the area here that we are working with insurance industry is products and services to underwrite these kind of large-scale projects. And by way of that, looking at the type of risks that are involved in uh, implementing these projects and availing insurance around that area. The second one is around infrastructure. So as you see, uh, as part of the post-pandemic, a lot of governments are now uh, starting to invest in, in infrastructure as a critical element for the society, but then many are really focusing on how to make the infrastructure green, clean, and resilient. And obviously, this is an area where, uh, with the insurance industry, particularly PNC, we are looking at how insurance industry could work with governments, particularly around uh, public assets and public infrastructure, to help with risk analysis, risk allocation, 
and better risk management so that these projects could become more investable grade. Traditionally, public assets and infrastructure are partially insured or not insured, are self-insured. So governments, when there is a an impact on an infrastructure, for example, like what happened in Texas, if that infrastructure is owned publicly, it's the taxpayer money through the post-disaster aid program that's used to fix this infrastructure. Now, governments are realizing that this kind of spending is not sustainable. And there is a whole discussion around reform of post-disaster aid to try to incentivize and mobilize um, you know, municipal governments and others in, in buying their own insurance for their assets and for infrastructure. So I would say this is an area that is in discussion through various platforms, G7, G20, APEC, uh, with the ministers of finance, but also it's starting to materialize in some uh, countries. Last point, I'm sorry I'm being long, but I think the other area of opportunity is around use of technology for what I call preventive management and maintenance. You see that emergence of satellite information, drones, cloud computing, real-time risk analysis, uh, use of control systems is offering new opportunities for, uh, uh, you know, for, for example, for um, you know, asset owners and infrastructure uh, um, operators to actually monitor these risks and work with the insurance industry uh, around risk management solutions. And by way of that, also, hopefully, we will get into a world where we will have more and more of preventive maintenance and risk management. So there is a lot of good stuff that are on the horizon that we can leverage. That's a natural segue, Paul. Where, where can technology play a role? What information would you like to see, you know, driven down into the underwriting and the product design process? Uh, you know, how can that that information transition be part of the the broader energy transition? Uh, thanks, Mark. Um, the, I mean, I think Mariam is absolutely right that that um, technology is going to play um, a strong role in terms of helping us all to use energy more efficiently and there's obvious examples in in you know for individuals in the home around you know having you know, sensors instead of light switches so that lights don't stay on and 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 having uh, more energy efficient white goods that uh, that we have in our in our kitchens um but you know the the technology the technology and machine learning can 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 also play a role in making industrial processes much, much more energy efficient so that you need less inputs in terms of energy or feedstocks to, to produce the same amount of product. So, you know, I think efficiency is going to be um, a frontier that we're constantly trying to, 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 to push um, because it's not just about, you know, the energy transition is going to require an increasing demand in electricity rather than a reduction, as we try to electrify everything, coupled with that um, you, you know, growing population on Earth and a, and a growing middle class population on Earth. So the demands for energy are going to uh, uh, increase. And, and we have to use energy more and more efficiently if we're going to be able to match um, that demand with, with uh, low carbon energy production. So, you know, we, 
otherwise we're going to have to keep pumping oil and gas um, uh, in order to, to, to produce that energy and we won't be able to transition fast enough. So, you know, efficiency is really, really important. The technology has got a good role to play in that. And technology can really help from an insurance product perspective as well. Um, if you look at motor insurance, motor premium, because it's a mandatory class of business, motor premium is uh, is a huge part of global insurance premium, right? Um, and um, technology like pay, you know, um, the sort of paper mile usage-based car insurance, um, not only um, encourages people to drive more responsibly by um, uh, you know, by being able to having the box in the car, which tells your insurer if you're speeding and driving recklessly. But it also encourages you to drive less because you get charged premium based upon how much you drive. Um, you know, and, and I think that, that, that those, you know, that there are ways of constructing insurance products that are going to incentivize policyholder behavior um, that will help to reduce risk um, in, in time and reduce reduce emissions as well uh, in terms of the way that uh, the way that people behave um, as far as you know other technology you know I think uh, Mary has mentioned carbon capture I think that that's a, that's an important technology which uh, which needs to scale um, and it also so so you know it needs to the investment to be able to to, to, to scale up carbon capture because when we talk about net zero it's uh, um, it's not it's not zero emissions it just means that we're offsetting or trying to capture you know capture the, the emissions that are still that are still happening um, and along so there's there's carbon capture but there's also carbon capture and usage as well as carbon capture storage uh, there are increasingly innovative ways that the uh, co2 that is captured can be used in other uh, areas like uh, co2 is being captured from one industrial process and then piped into industrial greenhouses to in increase the yield on uh, you know on the, on on food production so you know we're going to we're going to see a thousand kind of you know small innovative areas where um, as you know as the as the problem kind of crystallizes cop 26 is going to be a real rallying call later this year around climate change like we saw for paris um, and I think increasingly we're going to see government policy matching some of the rhetoric that uh, that has been um, that we've been hearing leading up to to, to COP26, um, and I think it, that some of those um, policy incentives are going to start to be more and more clear, allowing for um, allowing for the rewards of, of really investing in those innovative solutions um, to come to the fore. Um, direct air capture is um, is sort of prototype um, technology, which again, you know, it's just sucking carbon dioxide directly out of the air. Um, that's that's an area which is uh, is 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 clearly ripe for for, for, for expanding. And I think that there's going to be a bit of a revolution in in the agri business industry. Um, there's a there's a big role for agriculture to play in uh, in adapting to more regenerative farming practices and sustainable farming practices and uh, and it's you know it food security is going to become a, a, an increasing global problem so i think that there'll be opportunities in the agricultural insurance area for new agricultural insurance product 
Um, a lot of that insurance is subsidized by governments, and I think that um, climate change is going to you know, it's going to increase the level, the number of opportunities that we see around the world to develop agricultural business opportunities. So there's a few examples. Those are some excellent examples. I was thinking earlier, Miriam, you were talking about uh, you know some of the investment assets and the the, the green assets that that companies could invest in, and it really brought it brought to mind you know an insurer might choose to invest in a limited partnership developing a solar farm. And right now, the the you know the incentives are to own, own an ordinary corporate bond. On the one hand, you've got you know uh, you know activists encouraging greener investments, and on the other hand, you've got regulatory pushback making that the path of most resistance rather than the path of least resistance. So you know what, what are some of the challenges in implementing? Where where are the key areas where there needs to be collaboration? Uh, you know to kind of smooth out some of those rough bits. Um, excellent question. Um, well, I think we do have a, a, a pile of stuff that we need to do. I would say I would start um, as as far as the insurance industry is, uh, is concerned. Uh, in the area of risk assessment and risk pricing, Paul uh, talked about the limit of uh, NATCAP models, for example, uh, in terms of uh, pricing extreme risk. But as you have heard from this entire conversation, that that's not the only risk that the industry needs to worry about by, by way of managing its own risk and realizing opportunities uh, in this net zero, and those are transition risks. So the first area, I would say extensive industry collaboration, not only within, but with scientific committee and others in innovating uh, forward-looking climate risk assessment, modeling and scenario analysis, which is already is underway at scale internationally engaging largest insurance. So hopefully in the next uh, year or two or three, there will be pretty concrete approaches to such methodologies that is evolving out of this pretty extensive collaboration. I think once we know how to quantify and price risk better with a forward-looking approach, uh, a lot of opportunities uh, will present themselves. The second one is building on these net zero alliances and really creating scale in the industry and uh, working with other stakeholders in identifying what are the pathways. You know, we talk about these terms generically, but at the end of the day, we need to bring it uh, we need to bring it to what, uh, what, what's you know timeline? What are the milestones? And what does it mean for me in providing and innovating products and services? I think from uh, identifying targets, we still have a long way to go to really defining what these pathways may look like. And this is not something that industry can do alone. I mean, this is something that very strongly uh, depends on, you know, sort of national policies, strategies, and also engaging with other critical sectors such as finance to help the economic sectors, in this case, for example, energy companies and others uh, make their transitioning. Um, the third one is around uh, proactive engagement with regulatory bodies, regulation and good regulation plays a huge role. We, and already the industry is working actively to shape the regulations as opposed to just react to it. So I think this is a cultural change since the 2008 financial crisis. 
to you know get the regulatory bodies to work closely with the industry but i think we also need given that climate change is a global issue and actions taken in one country would impact the other uh, we also very much encourage that there needs to be collaboration and coordination on the regulatory front across different jurisdictions um fourth one is i think in general we need to move from silo thinking to more integrated thinking um, and, and my feeling is that as we innovate and we think about how we transition, the industry itself need to rethink its products and services and, and really be mindful of what is needed in, in the transitioning and innovate around that front. Um, very importantly, um, proactive engagement with the public sector and other stakeholders. Uh, just going back, for example, to the flood case, Insurance industry cannot develop this market on its own, nor it can manage the risks of this market. You know, there are many players involved in enabling a viable, uh, you, you know, insurance market. And that is role of governments in how they invest in risk reduction and, you know, adaptation mitigation measures, uh, finance and banking and lending industry, you know, the um, real estate industry when it comes to asset valuation. I mean, so I think we, we need to move towards as a society to think about this in a much more integrated way. And that is where governments and industry can innovate a lot as we are seeing in a number of uh, area. And finally, I cannot uh, uh, express more that obviously while many companies are working on a lot of innovation, we are realizing that initiatives that brings the industry together to innovate and think through these things in a very strategic way are really bearing fruit uh, in opening up the opportunities. For example, Geneva Association does that with 80 CEOs of the industry to really think about how as an industry we can impact the society and how we can manage the risk. Insurance development firm that Paul uh, uh, alluded to is trying to bring practical insurance solutions on the ground in developing countries and open up a whole new uh, set of markets there. So I think these are some of the examples. Maybe um, I will pass on to you. Maybe Paul has uh, more points to add. Yeah, Paul, I mean, I guess um, from, the, from the corporate angle, um, uh, without speaking specifically about school, what are the challenges in, in kind of implementing um, lots of these things. Um, and then I guess to finish up the session before we move into Q&A, what are the next steps we should look at or, or kind of specific areas of collaboration? We've seen we've seen this shift from the corporate social responsibility of which was a voluntary, uh, voluntary um, endeavor of, you know, of two decades ago has morphed into ESG, which is a very, very structured mandatory framework that everyone has to operate to and and climate change is very very strongly part of the e and there are lots of uh, there are lots of considerations that we need to be alive to in the way that we you know comport ourselves in the way that we do business and respond to climate change so that's 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 a significant one and and you know, let's be clear it's a reputational minefield that we're having to pick our way through uh, we have we have this challenge, sort of double materiality challenge, where yes, climate change affects us, but yes, we are, as an industry, still ensuring the economy as it stands today, and that includes some heavy emitting sectors. So, 
you know, the, there are reputational challenges that, that we need to be really careful about how we how we navigate. And, you know, you, you see you see companies tripping up along the way, and and some of that is about balancing the various different stakeholder re, um, requirements or demands that we have. It's you know, it's clear. You know, you see activists and campaigning investment groups, but there's also a lot of investors that just want the return, right? And and you know the, the challenge is how do you balance those competing demands within a single stakeholder group because um, it shouldn't necessarily just be about who's shouting the loudest. But you know there's a real there's a real balancing um, task to do there. Um, practical challenge that we have as we as we all start thinking about making net zero commitments on the in insurance side as well as on the investment side is is how do you do carbon footprinting for um, complex portfolios of reinsurance business, right? This is a non-trivial problem. There's, there's all, sorts of, uh, all sorts of opportunities for double counting and getting it wrong along the way. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some, some, some technical methodological problems that we need to work out around carbon footprinting. And then uh, Mariam's talked about net zero initiatives. The Insurance Alliance is, is a key area of collaboration, which, um, which I think that you will start, you know, there are seven founding, um, founding companies working on getting that alliance up and running. Um, the Insurance Alliance is a bit further behind than the Asset Owners Alliance, which was, uh, uh, which was, which has got a couple of years head start. But I think that with COP26 coming up in November, we're going to see a sort of a flurry of activity in that direction. And I think that the, the, the industry, uh, the direction of travel is clear um, for us as an industry. And, and on the protection gap, we talked about Insurance Development Forum. I think one of the interesting projects that um, uh, that is coming out of the Insurance Development Forum is the Global Risk Modeling Alliance, which is trying to work with the private sector, public sector together to build the capacity in the finance ministries of emerging economies to, to share the insights that we have as an industry on the problems that, 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 uh, and the hazards that they face uh, and to, to help equip them to make those, those risk-based decisions around risk transfer. So you know, that's a really positive um, initiative supported by another innovation, which is open source cap models which provide transparency to the uh, to the risk modeling process for all of the different stakeholder groups that need to understand the basis upon how you structure a, uh, a sovereign risk transfer deal. So I think that's a that's a, a few few good examples there. Yeah, no, that's uh, that, that's helpful. I'm going to remind everybody. Uh, we'll go to the Q and A. We've got time for one or two questions, maybe. I'm going to remind everybody on the line that if you've got a question, uh, just uh, type it into the the Q and A box on on your screen. There, uh, we'll we'll see those and uh, we'll we'll get them asked to the group. Um, we got one that one here to, to to talk about first, and the the question relates to just. Um, you know, what are some of the key regulations, one of the areas uh, both in the U.S. and in the EU, uh, you know, where the, where the where, uh, regulators can, can work together with insurers to, you know, kind of facilitate the process? Um, maybe, Miriam, you can start, and Paul, if you have anything sure. you want to add and jump in afterwards. Uh, this is actually spot on, you know, when you think about climate change and financial and insurance regulatory bodies, the, the action on the regulator's part have been first around disclosure of climate risk information by the financial and insurance sector and increasingly 
regulators are starting to look at how climate change actually impacts the financial and insurance sector. And, you know, there are a, a number of different objectives depending on the regulatory body and their jurisdiction. But uh, in fact, as an industry, we've identified this collaboration to be foundational, particularly around the core issue of how do you develop you know, on, on the methodologies that produce decision useful information uh, on climate risk that could be the underpinning foundation of a company's decision making in the business and strategic time horizons, but also provide feedback into the regulatory uh, community pertaining to you know issues that they have related to development of markets, financial stability and others. So that is to us one of the biggest areas of collaboration that needs to happen at several levels. We actually have enabled uh, international uh, collaboration, engaging life and non-life insurers through the Geneva Association platform to develop together these decision-useful methodologies. Uh, the second level of collaboration is industry with regulatory bodies. Generally, uh, that collaboration um, in the last years has been through consultations, but increasingly regulatory bodies are setting up working groups to engage industry experts in design and development of, of their approaches. So we want that to be further strengthened. And then the third level of collaboration is across regulatory bodies globally. You talked about the United States. You know that there is a big movement through, for example, SEC, through uh, the Treasury and, and the Federal Insurance uh, Office, as well as through NAIC and various uh, state regulators. Obviously, uh, some states have their own priorities, but this whole issue of disclosure and reporting, it's something that could be common to everyone. Uh, Europe has made some strides from a regulatory body in these areas, but we have come back as an industry and looked at these regulatory approaches and have challenged them and saying that some of these may need to be rethought uh, in terms of what type of tools and methodologies you need. And I'm very happy to say that we have launched a collaboration between our, the, this international task force on climate risk assessment and regulatory bodies, and we will come together in a meeting in July to really bring some of these issues out and, and engage. Uh, one of the things you may have seen that the, the Network for Greening of Finance, which is a sort of a, a platform of central bank uh, banks, have brought this kind of a global uh, engagement of regulators uh, for the financial sector together. We are encouraging that this kind of collaboration among regulators need to be further enhanced to also include regulators that are regulating insurance industry. And we are also promoting that NAIC and the uh, International Association on Insurance Commissioners uh, uh, should also come together and think through this because we need ultimately to have alignment uh, and, and and sort of certain standards for disclosure of climate uh, information that's underpinned by decision useful information produced from good methodology. So this is where I think you will see extensive uh, deliberations and engagement in the years to come. 
Thank you for that. I always I always like the disclosure angle too. I always find it, uh, you know, disclosure begets action, right? Nobody wants to be the guy who doesn't have a good disclosure to put in their report. Uh, and that, that makes things happen. Paul, anything to add? We're, we're a little short on time, but if you've got any final thoughts you'd like to add on that, uh, happy to go with it. Just a quick point on that, that the, the fragmentation of regulatory action, uh, uh, and particularly in questionnaires and surveys on climate change, is a real challenge for global groups. You know, we, we have a lot of regulators and a lot of jurisdictions to interact with. And, and I think Marion hit on the, the, the term decision useful. Um, and I think part of the challenge is that as regulators learn themselves in terms of what questions they think are interesting, sometimes they, they're asking questions on the behalf of uh, their, their supervised entity, but actually don't give anything useful at the end of the day. So there's some frustrations there that we need to work, work with regulators to kind of yeah, home in on the really interesting and important question. Okay, well, I see that we're at the we're at the half hour. Uh, thanks to uh, thanks to both Mariam and Paul for their their time today and their their excellent insights on the topic. Uh, thanks to all the listeners who who made the time to 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 hear uh, to hear the thoughts. Uh, sorry if we didn't get to all the questions. We'll circle back around and we'll uh, we'll help out with those where necessary. Um, but with that, uh, on behalf of Cameron and, and myself and and RBC, uh, thank you for joining us today. And um, you're free to free to disconnect and enjoy your day. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. This has been an RBC Capital Markets production. To hear more from RBC Capital Markets, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Amazon, or visit our website, rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.